tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello, here we are again, trying to unfold the mysteries of Scripture. I, I hope it's more light than smoke, but when I talk about it. But let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them in the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations. By the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. You know the one, the Bible. We are reading from the letter of St. Saint, of Saint Hebrews. <laughs> We're reading of the letter of to the Hebrews, uh, the 13th chapter. They might have been first, saints. They might have been, yeah. The, the first chapter, the 13th chapter, first verse to the 8th. Let brotherly love continue. And this is Philadelphia. Now, remember, this is philia, which is, again, with the three or four words for Greek. You had storge, which meant family loyalty. Then you had eros, the love that wanted to possess the beloved, from which we get the word erotic. And you had agape, which was a rare word, a much underused word until uh, the translators of the scriptures got a hold of it. Uh, and it means uh, an innocent love that is sacrificial. It really hopes for no return. Uh, and then, of course, philia, which means mutual affection. And this is philia. Philadelphia is, in fact, the word. So uh, let Philadelphia continue. All right. Well, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect hospitality. For through it, some have unknowingly entertained angels. Uh, this is, you know... This is something that we don't think about. We we are surrounded by angels, and we live on the edge, as I, I always point out, C.S. Lewis says in the screw tape letters, we live on the shore of two separate worlds. We live on, on the line between heaven and the celestial realms, the spiritual world, and the material world. So uh, he, he the devil, uh, in the screw tape letters, uh, is... Uh, compares human beings to amphibians <laughs> living like frogs on the edge of a pond. And uh, I think that isn't a bad comparison, though I'm, I don't like being called a frog. Moving along, uh, be mindful of prisoners as if sharing their imprisonment. And, you know, this is a little different um, for us. I mean, oddly enough, the Romans did not have... Uh, didn't really have jails in, in Rome. 
Uh, there was a jail, uh, the Mamertine prison, which you didn't spend long there because you were executed the minute pretty much when you got there. You were consigned to live with a citizen uh, 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 who would be personally responsible for you uh, at a certain point in Roman history. There were jails. I mean, we see them in the Acts of the Apostles. But but the confinement was was different. It was much less formal. Now, of course, you have to sign a lot of papers and go through a lot of lockdowns. But but I think that the more good things you can do for, for people who are imprisoned, the better. And I think one thing that we should think about is, is ransoming the captive. Uh, there are uh, all sorts of people uh, who are enslaved in the world. Um, you can find an organization, reputable organizations, that, that will buy young women out of slavery in Thailand. You can do that kind of thing. You can really um, – uh, uh, and I would do it through Catholic charities or through a reputable organization. But the idea that, that uh, you can ransom the captive, this is a worthy charity. All right. Um, so uh, be mindful of prisoners because you are also in the flesh. And uh, the spirit cannot be chained, but the flesh can be, and we're still in the flesh. So to look at another person and say, you know, there but for God's grace go I. You know, we are so quick to condemn the criminal, and, well, they've already been condemned. Uh, and, and uh, you know, again, this I think this has to do—we we talked the other day about the Blessed Mother and how she would be— uh, uh, reveal the thoughts of, of, of many— and I said that if you look at the family as an institution, or the, the church, rather, as an institution, there's no room in it for the Blessed Mother. If you look at the church as a family, well, families have mothers. The Blessed Mother is very important in how we look at the church. And I think we really have to look at the church as a family. And, you know, so many people I've known have kids who are in jail, and and rightly so, for having committed heinous crimes. But they don't cease to be their children. And so it is that that in the Christian family, we should remember, even if there is egregious wrongdoing, these people don't cease to be our children. Um, uh, I think I've quoted this. Uh, an old Pentecostal preacher once said, the, the Christians are the only army that shoots its own wounded. And, well, what about the victims? Yeah, okay, you have compassion for them too. But, but you got to think of the church as a family. That when a family is afflicted with, with say, a, a kid who's selling drugs, you know, uh, or, or, or worse than that, a kid who's giving drugs to another one of you, to one of his siblings, you wouldn't you wouldn't reject either one of them. You'd do what was best for both, but but your heart would break for both of them. So be mindful of prisoners as if sharing their imprisonment, and of the ill-treated as of yourselves, for you also are in the body. Let marriage be honored among all, and the marriage bed be kept undefiled. That, that's a very beautiful and a very vivid way to put it, that, that there is a sacredness to intimacy in the sacrament of marriage, that, that intimacy in the sacrament of marriage is, is not a, a, a shameful thing at all. It's, it's, it's a holy thing. And to honor that, that uh, uh, what's the word? In, in other words, uh, the intimacy between a husband and wife married in the Lord is a mystery in the classical sense. It is a secret. And to guard that secret and to guard the sacredness of, you know, the sacraments in, in, in Greek are called the mysteries. And marriage is one of these sacred mysteries. It's, 
it's a holy thing. And to, to regard uh, uh, the, the intimacy of a husband and wife as a holy uh, and uh, a thing whispered because it's holy, I, you know, that's an important thing. And, and uh, you know, we can be too glib about this sort of thing. But um, uh, I, I think that, that uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of my mother and father. Dad would come home. He would wash his hands. He would kiss my mother. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you think, that's all the kissing stuff. But, you know, I would give everything I have to see that old man kiss that old woman again. I mean, there was a sacredness about their relationship. All right, I'm moving on. Let your life be free from love of money. Now, everybody says that, uh, well, everybody, most most reputable scholars say that the letter to the Hebrews was not written by St. Paul. We always talked about it as being Pauline. I, I don't think... It, I don't think it's impossible that it is a Pauline letter because it. I think that the in my from my estimation the most Talmudic the most uh, uh, you know I talked about that that precise reasoning that that is Talmudic thinking the letter to the Romans and the letter to the Hebrews are the two uh, best examples of Pharisee reasoning and Paul was a Pharisee before he uh, had his experience on the Damascus Road and. He this word he uses this word when he says that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's the same word as this one, the love of money, and it doesn't really quite mean the love of money. It means uh, friendship with money. You know, money is a good slave. It is not a good friend. If you can use money to do good in your life, the lives of the people. Uh, who are under your care and the lives do good for the lives of people around you. This is wonderful. That's what money's for. But that idea of friendship with money, and this is this is the word. Uh, um, let your life be free from the love of money, and it's it has an alpha privative on it. It's it's unmoney friendly, <laughs> unfriendly to money. Be content with what you have, and that's that's really the sen- the sense of uh, of the text. Then he says, I will never forsake you nor abandon you. And it's, it's an interesting word. I, I, will never, I will never go up from you or, or let you down. Uh, thus we may say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. Uh, so remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. If this letter is written to people in the Holy Land, people started dying very early uh, under the persecutions of Herod. And this wonderful line, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, let me look at the time because I want to rant and rave about this. There is something called dispensationalism. And St. Augustine was originally a dispensationalist, but then he changed his mind. You know, uh, uh, in certain Christian groups, there's a dispensationalism that comes from St. Augustine, but they don't read the text where St. Augustine changed his mind. Now, what is dispensationalism? God works in a certain way in one era and in another way in another era. Uh, the popular one is that the age of miracles ended when Scripture was completed. Augustine believed the age of miracles was over. But then there was kind of a charismatic renewal in uh, at a healing shrine in his diocese. People were getting healed at the shrine of some martyr. And, well, Augustine changed his mind, and he said, oh, I guess miracles do happen. And uh, he, he uh, uh, rejected, I think, his own dispensationalism. 
the Reformers, 500 years ago, took the text in Scripture from 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away, to say that because the perfect had come in Scripture, that the age of miracles was over. We Catholics have always believed, nope, the age of miracles continues, and I, I really believe that. I mean, we live in a miraculous world, and God intervenes constantly, and, and the age of miracles never ended. Um, <clears throat> I think that's an important distinction between classical Protestantism and Catholicism. Uh, classical Protestantism really believes that, that miracles are unnecessary because of the scriptures. And um, uh, in a sense, the Pentecostal movement was uh, a rediscovery of a Catholic tradition. Uh, but uh, that's, that's a theme for another day. Uh, a voice Why in don't my... Protestants believe well, because, miracles are necessary? Well, because I think in the Middle Ages, <laughs> they had there was a real going market in miracles. And I think that Calvin and uh, Luther both reacted to that, and reasonably. But they, they Luther especially was very influenced by Augustine and thought of this dispensationalism. There was an age that was miraculous, but you didn't need miracles. The, the moment the last word of Scripture was set down— the age of miracles was over. That's what Luther seems to have believed. And the text that he used for that was from 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. So we don't need miracles anymore because the Bible's perfect. Well, the Bible may be perfect, but my eyes and ears, they ain't so good. So, um, you know, the, the, uh, the continuing, we Catholics have always believed that God continues to speak prophetically, uh, and that God works miracles. God is not going to say anything he hasn't already revealed, but the prophetic gifts really do emphasize what he has said in a particular situation. So um, he is the same, and this is the, the scripture verse that I would use to, to back that up. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't work a new way today. He, he, this idea that, well, the gospel should change nonsense. The gospel is profoundly human. And it's a profound insight into the unchanging human nature. Uh, um, we are not, as the scripture says elsewhere, we are not better than our fathers. Uh, humanity is not evolving in that sense at all. That we believe that human beings are never more human. That, that, that um, you know, the people doing the cave paintings thousands of years before Christ, they were as human as I am and as responsible morally as I am. And if you really look at them, they were quite as sophisticated as we are. But again, so Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It doesn't work in a new way in this age. Or, or you know, I remember talking about the new morality. <laughs> and some old priest said, yes, it's pretty much the same as the old immorality. But I, I want to move on. I, I want to go quickly to the gospel. We don't have much time. Uh, we all know this story, the... the uh, uh, this is from Mark, the sixth chapter. It is the beheading of John the Baptist. The thing that I, I really want to point out, this was not Herod who killed the babies. This was, uh, I think this was, oh gosh, I looked it up, but now I forget. It was, I think, Herod Antipas. You see, the Romans, Herod was, uh, uh, Herod the Great uh, was was an amazing man. And he, he was this great political uh, mover and shaker. And he rebuilt the temple and he... 
he just created this empire in the Middle East. He dominated uh, what was essentially the land bridge between Asia, Africa, and Europe, uh, which is the Holy Land, and there a lot of power in one in one person's uh, hands. And the Romans did not want that to happen, so they broke up his kingdom, and his children and grandchildren were monarchs of very tiny principalities. It would almost be like Monaco. It was just some of them were tiny, and they were called tetrarchs. In other words, they were the, the leaders of a, a quarter part. And this, I think, was Herod Antipas, who had married his brother's wife, uh, his brother Phil, Herod Philip, uh, um, married his wife, and um, John the Baptist said, you can't do that. Uh, and so Herodias wanted him killed. This was a bloodthirsty family. Herod the Great killed two of his own sons and his wife uh, because they were getting uppity. They were real aristocrats. They were Maccabees. And dad was just kind of an upstart. And Herod was not going to put up with that. He worried about revolution in his own family. So he executed his wife and his beloved wife. He really loved her, uh, Mariamne, the last Maccabee princess and two of his sons by her. And uh, he was haunted by that crime the rest of his life. So his kids were no less bloodthirsty. So um, you know the story that that his niece dances for him, <laughs> and uh, uh, Salome was his niece, and uh, uh, apparently she was a pretty good dancer. I, didn't, I don't think it was a tap dance. So um, he said, whatever you want. And, and Herodias said she wanted she wanted John the Baptist dead. Herod Herod did not remember this is not Herod the Great this is his son. Herod the Great one didn't want him dead. He was fascinated by it and he was torn between his his worldly uh, power and and the religion that he professed of Judaism. So she knew she had him because he'd made an oath and he would have looked weak in the eyes of his guests, and a, a monarch who sits lightly on his throne can't afford it. So <clears throat> he had uh, John the Baptist beheaded, and they brought <coughs> the uh, they brought the uh, uh, head to this girl on a platter. This is the kind of people they were. Oh, look, it's a head. You and I would have fainted, or at least been ill. Not Salome and Herodias. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, I have a cough button. There. Um, uh, that's the kind of people they were. Well, that said, we're going to move on, and uh, we will— uh, And I had my throat blessed this morning, too, golly. <coughs> I'm fine. Oh, 888-914-9149. Do call in, 888-914-9149. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for Independent Thinkers at RelevantRadio.com forward slash UDallas. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart, down in my heart, I've got that joy. I was just thinking of that passage in Scripture. The rejoicing in that town rose to fever pitch. <laughs> That's little Richard. The, uh, um, 
the way they usually read it is, is uh, and the joy in that town rose to fever pitch, the word of the Lord. <laughs> you know? Oh, joy at fever pitch. I've seen it in some religious ceremonies, but not in the letter I'm about to read. Let's go to letters. When I was young, this is from Mary. When I was young, we had low and high masses. The low mass was quiet. The high mass had choir music throughout. When I go to Mass on Sunday now, I am extremely irritated at the amount of music I get. Sometimes I am too, but only when it's uh, <laughs> bad singing. But Dogs I, and cats living <laughs> together. Uh -oh, mass is Uh-oh, we're on the Mass stream. I feel like I'm going to a concert and that it overshadows liturgy. You know, Mary, you have a point. This is this is a big deal. Why has our church mandated that at every Sunday Mass we must have constant singing? For instance, the responsorial song. We're supposed to sing at Mass. Now, the reason that we sing at Mass, remember, was it St. Pius X who said, uh, um, he who sings prays twice. Oh, that was that was Augustine? I guess it was quoted by Pius X. Well, yeah, whoever. A saint said it. Moving along, the voice in my head just corrected me. It's, he's good. But the um, this idea that, that singing at Mass... The reason that singing is important at Mass is that we are a composite being. We, we, I, I, I look, you know, the body, soul, spirit thing, I, the way I've come to look at it after pondering it for 60 years is that we are spirits who manifest in a, a mortal body and an immortal soul. These are dimensions of the person. And something that touches only my spirit isn't enough. Something that touches my spirit and soul isn't enough. Liturgy, worship, is supposed to be expressed with my body also. That's why we have incense and candles. And and we have the Holy Eucharist in Christ in physical form uh, and holy water. And all these things, they touch our senses. In a sense, we, we smell the Lord in incense and we touch the Lord in the Holy Eucharist when we receive whether we receive in the hand or on the tongue. We, we, we see the Lord in the light of the candles. The, these are all... Uh, uh, we, we and we hear the Lord in music, but not only do we hear the Lord in music, that that when you pray, it's from the throat up. When you sing, it's from the diaphragm up, the center of your very physical body. And it has always been true that in worship we have sung. Now the problem is we have come to sing songs at Mass. Catholics are not supposed to sing songs at Mass. They're supposed to sing the Mass. In other words, there are appropriate parts of the Mass. There's the entrance verse, which I think should be sung, chanted. And then there is the uh, uh, the, the responsorial psalm that you mentioned. There's the verse before the, the Alleluia. There's the communion, and there should be an offertory verse. We're singing the scriptures, and this is a good thing. However, what really happens is some choir director or liturgy committee picks out four of their favorite songs, and we sing them at Mass. That I, I think that's the wrong way to go. We shouldn't be singing songs at Mass. We should be singing the Mass. Am I right or am I right or am I right? I'm right. All right, moving along. Let's see here. Whatever happened to a sacred silence? Now, this is another thing. Um, Mary, I think you're absolutely right. There has to be silence. The Scripture says, be still and know that I am God. There has to be quiet at Mass. If there isn't quiet at Mass, then we're missing something. Quiet, in its own way, is a kind of music. It, it's, it's, it's a lack of sound that focuses you. If you go into a place 
and there's 100 people sitting there in absolute silence, you wonder, what's going on here? Well, they're waiting on the Lord, and I think that's a very appropriate thing. So it's a kind of balance. And and uh, what I really resonate with, Mary, is when you say, it's like I'm going to a concert. And I think I've shared this story a number of times, this the great battle of the bands. There was a choir in front and a choir in the choir loft, and some bishop was being installed or or retooled or something, some grand event. And uh, and the choir director ran to me and said, how did you like the music? And I don't know if I said this to him, but I may have actually said it, or I certainly wanted to say it. We said, oh, how did you like the music? I so wanted to say I really enjoyed it. I hope God did too. You know, this idea that we're singing for the congregation. And, of course, this ends with... Uh, uh, the congregation applauding the wonderful choir performance, which is absolutely wrong. It is, I believe, wrong to applaud at the end of Mass, with some exceptions. If someone is being recognized in the announcements for having made the most wonderful uh, fruitcake uh, that any parish banquet ever had, uh, maybe that's appropriate at the end of Mass. But to applaud the choir... It just, it just, it's just wrong, wrongity, wrong, wrong. Non si fa, as the voice in my head just said. All right, so it's an interesting take, Mary, but it isn't the singing, I think, that you really object to. It's the performance <laughs> that you object to. Uh, and as for those who are young and don't know about a low and a high mass, a low mass was just the priest went up and he said mass facing the wall, talking to God. You, you knelt there, you went to communion if you had, were prepared to do so, and it was... Uh, a brief and simple, beautiful thing, uh, and was the usual daily mass. And the high mass was had a choir and, you know, the smells and the bells and the whole schmear, which is also very beautiful. I remember them well, but they were distinct. You, you didn't sort of throw in a few songs. <clears throat> All right. That said, let me, let me go on to a next one. Let me click there. And now I will go here uh, to, uh, let's see this one here. What time? What, how, what, what are we doing time? We're good. Okay. Oh, by the way, there are plenty of lines open at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Okay. And this is uh, from Julie, and she sent me something, and I, Julie, I did get it, so thank you very much. That was very kind. Just wanted to let you know I did get it. Let's see here. Okay. All right, now let's see here. This is, okay, my elderly mother living in Jacksonville, uh, Florida, uh, had a mother, uh, this is, no, this is from Todd, had a, a husband who passed away. This man was a wonderful man, uh, was a, a, a Protestant Christian. My mother's marriage to Patrick was by means of U.S. Navy chaplain. However, prior to meeting and marrying Patrick, my mother was married to my father, who was a non-practicing Mormon. My father attended marriage preparation class with my mother, and they were uh, married in the Catholic Church, but a wedding mass was not conducted. It was my mother's first marriage to a non-Catholic, but who completed marriage classes taught by the Catholic Church, never baptized into the church, recognized as sacramental marriage? No, it wasn't on two levels. Uh, it, it could be a valid and binding marriage, provided there were the appropriate uh, dispensations and appropriate if, if the first marriage was was null. Uh, but a marriage, as I understand it, between a baptized and a non-baptized person is not, strictly speaking, a sacrament because <clears throat> the, the um, 
one of the partners is not in in in, in the state where he he or she can receive a sacrament. So it wouldn't. I now, if I'm wrong on this, please correct me. This might have been this idea might have changed, but I was taught that a marriage between a baptized and a non-baptized pair. A couple could be uh, valid, but not sacramental. Again, I, 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 if I'm wrong, I want to be corrected. Um, however, uh, it sounds like there was no annulment uh, for the first marriage, so the second marriage would not have been sacramental on that basis either. And, uh, you know, maybe your mom should, should go and uh, uh, talk to her pastor and, and uh, you know, see— you know, just kind of pray pray about it, and if it's necessary to go to confession, go to confession. Say, well, I don't. I had a wonderful time with this wonderful man. It was a wonderful marriage. It may have been, but it is always uh, appropriate to say, if I have offended God in any way, I am truly sorry. You know, and and uh, I've known people who don't want to annul uh, or or who don't want to. Uh, uh, what's the word, get a marriage validated because it implies it wasn't valid to begin with. What you're simply saying is, Lord, if I've offended you in any way, I'm sorry. Uh, and if you can't say that, well, your spiritual condition is pretty bad. So I would encourage your mother to to, uh, to go talk to her pastor, and uh, I will certainly keep her and you in my prayers. Uh, it sounds like this guy was a wonderful guy, and to the best of their lights, they did the best they knew. So we're hoping. All right, let me... Let me look at the time. I think I can do one more letter. Let me see if I can find a fun one. All right. Um, This is from Kathleen. Is it possible or even probable that Simeon and Anna knew Our Lady from the time she was living in the temple growing up? Seeing her with our Lord in her arms would have been a confirmation of how special uh, she must have been seen uh, to be as a child. I suppose it's possible. As I always say, I wasn't there. So uh, it's possible. And there is an ancient tradition that we actually get from the something called the Proto-Evangelion of St. James. That means the first gospel of St. James. And it was probably written in the early 100s, so within a long lifetime, a very long lifetime of, of, of these things. And some of the stories in it may really be historically true. Others are apparently quite fanciful. It was never included as one of the canonical Gospels, though it was respected by uh, a number of early Christian authors. And in that, it seems to indicate that our Blessed Mother had uh, uh, taken a a vow of chastity early and uh, was given over to the temple. Well, that's just mythology. No, it's not, actually. It does seem that that the this levered vow happened. We read about it in or this the Nazarite vow rather happens. Uh, we read about it in the in Leviticus, and the strong tradition is that Saint Joseph was significantly older than the Blessed Mother, uh, and it would have made sense because you didn't have convents for women; uh, they had to be cared for by a, 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 a man in the family, and. That would have made sense that Joseph was kind of a caretaker husband, and it was a genuine marriage, though it was not uh, there was not the the physical intimacy and expected marriage. This is an ancient, very ancient and strongly held tradition, and the house. It's interesting to me the house of Saints Joachim and Anna is right where the corner of the temple would have been. 
so, and there, it does seem that there were young women who attended to, now don't, don't shoot the messenger here, attended to what would have been in former times called women's work, you know, the sewing, the, the stuff that takes patience and skill that, you know, men, we're, we're scanning the horizon for the woolly mammoth. <laughs> women are much better at details, and at least I found that in my life. So uh, um, <laughs> remember, don't shoot the messenger. It's just a theory. But, you know, that, that idea that the Blessed Mother was, there's the salt, salt, the salt shaker. The, uh, the Blessed Mother um, um, may well have been someone who helped in the work of the temple and thus perhaps Simeon and Anna who were habitués, to use the fancy-schmancy word, people who hung around, they were habitués of the temple. So it's possible, but I don't. I've never heard that before anywhere else. So that said, we're going to go to a break. Again, there's plenty of room on the phones at 888-914-9149. Hi, this is Father Rich Simon. Have you ever dreamt of seeing the sights in Italy? St. Peter's Basilica? The Sistine Chapel? Drew Mariani in the Colosseum, fighting to the death? More info on our September Eucharistic Revival Pilgrimage at relevantradio.com slash Italy. Seats are limited, not in the Colosseum necessarily, but on, on the pilgrimage. If you miss the train I'm on, you will know. One of those cheerful folk songs that I played in the 60s. Oh, G, C, D7. G, E minor, C, D7. I can, I can feel the chords in my arthritic old hands. All right, let's go to phones. Oh, the word of the day. I forgot. Not the phones, the word of the day. And it's kind of a, well, not a fun word of the day. Uh, the text says, the king was deeply distressed. I don't know if this is an edifying word, but it's a cool one. The word is perilupos. Perilupos. <laughs> perilupos. No, perilupos. No, but it means surrounded by sorrow. It means engulfed in sorrow. He was surrounded by sorrow. Uh-uh. You, you almost have to feel for this guy. I mean, his sinfulness, his weakness brought him into a position where he was surrounded by sorrow. And, you know, that that um, so often we want to get angry at God because we feel, you know, because this isn't a sin. You know why we do that? Because if we really perceived the nature of our sins, we would be like Herod Antipas, uh, Perilopos, surrounded by sorrow. And I think that's a powerful word. All right. Well, that cheerful thought. Let's go to the the phones. Hello, Ariel. Are you with us? How are you? I'm pretty good. What can I do for you? I wanted you to see if you could explain to me the differences and distinctions between the words Hebrew, Israelite, and Jew as we use them today, and as they've been used in the past. Today, they all mean the same exact thing, except in a synagogue, oddly enough. 
if you go to a synagogue ceremony, they will call up Cohen, which means is anybody a, a, a descendant of Aaron here, a sacrificer? And if there's somebody named Cohen or Kogan or Kaplan, they will come up and they will read from the text of Scripture. And then they will call up Levi, which means are you from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe? Then they will call up Israel, if you're from any of the other 12 tribes. That's the only place where the distinction is made. They don't call up Judah, which is the tribe from, of, of Judah from which the word Jew comes. That's the only difference today. So Hebrew, Israelite, and Jew, they are used interchangeably today, but I don't believe they were at the time of Christ. Hebrew was a, a kind of a nationality, and it was the word commonly used, uh, for instance, by the Romans and the Greeks, uh, the Hebrews. Uh, the word Israel was a membership in that nationality. I'm an Israelite. Uh, that, that It wasn't the name of the country. Judah was the name of one of the 12 tribes, the, the dominant tribe. The, the tribes had been scattered uh, in history. The only uh, identifiable tribes at the time of Christ were Le Levi, the tribe of the Levites, Levi, and Benjamin, and Judah. But you see that, for instance, Anna was from the tribe of Asher. Uh, uh, they kept their tribal distinctions where they could. But most of the 12 tribes had been taken off into exile by the, by the Assyrians some 700-plus years before Christ. So the only ones that came back from exile in Babylon were Judah and Benjamin, and uh, uh, Simeon had been absorbed into Judah. So Judean became the common word, and to be a Judean was to be a member of that tribe. So that's the distinction of the time of Christ. Israel was the entire nation. Hebrews were what they called the nation. And Judah, Judean, were the members of that political community that gathered around the temple. I don't know if that explains it to you, does it? I think for the most part. Uh, so then... Judeans were the more like the temple-based uh, worshippers versus the non-temple-based, like the Essenes or something like that. That's that's as I I that's what I think is going on. You know, it's it's hard to say because we really we actually know very little about the Essenes. Uh, um, we have a lot of theories about them, but it's clear that there were whole groups of people who were usually from priestly families. They would have been the tribe of Levi who rejected the temple because it was it was corrupt and it was it was uh, uh, defiled so they they didn't have anything to do with temple worship or the temple calendar and the Essenes would have been one of those groups John the Baptist followers seemed to have been one of those groups and and uh, uh, even Jesus didn't celebrate Passover it seems on the schedule the calendar of the temple because he celebrated it before the the the, the temple uh, the temple uh, participants celebrated it. So, yeah, I, I think that there were people who rejected. For instance, uh, uh, in the Essene documents, they talk about, in the I think it's the Damascus Scroll, they talk about the Jews. Well, this would have been written by someone we would call a Jew, but he wouldn't have called himself a Jew. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, hold on here. The um, See, I just used the cough button. Tell me you're impressed, everybody. Where was I? Uh, so they made these distinctions, um, whereas 
Modern Jews do not. So does that help a little? Oh, yeah, it helps a lot, Father. Oh, right. well, good. If you, good. Had, if you had some time, how does St. Paul use it then when he uses it? or how Very we interesting. In He's from the tribe of Benjamin, but he calls himself a Jew. He, he also calls himself a Hebrew. Uh, um, when he's talking about himself. so But he's not using them interchangeably. He was Jewish because he was, uh, I think, he would have called himself a Jew, because a Judean, because he was part of the Judean uh, religious governmental system. He was delegated by the high priest to go to Damascus and to root out these Christians. So he was Judean. In other words, he favored things the tribe of Judah dominated. Um, so he called himself in one place. I am a, I am a Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin. I'd, I'd have to look it up. But he uses them, but with a slightly different specification. So he was all three in a certain context. Does that help a little? That helps a lot, Father. Well, Thank you. And remember, this is the way I look at it. So good luck with that. All right, let's go to uh, let's go to Elizabeth from Riverside, Rhode Island. Are you with us? What can I do for you, Elizabeth? Yes. Good afternoon, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm calling because I find it very annoying that at uh, communion they play very familiar music and. When I was going to religious instructions, I was told that that's a time when you speak to Jesus. He's actually with you and um, talking to you and not listening to you, trying to block out the music. What do you think of that? Well, it you know, music is appropriate at communion, but it shouldn't be music that kind of keeps you from talking to the Lord. You know, it's... Uh, um, you know, I, I, for me, it's kind of both and. Uh, I, you know, sometimes the Lord really speaks to me in a beautiful hymn, or especially in the text of Scripture, uh, when it is it is when it's sung or chanted. Uh, so it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. But if it really bothers you, get those foam earplugs. Seriously, I, I mean that. If people, you know, I can't pray in church. I come into church and they're talking and everything. Get some foam earplugs, and, and people see you put them in, they'll think you're nuts. But well, if they ask you, say, I want to pray quietly, and this is a noisy place. Seriously, foam earplugs. Why I'll, I'll, not? I'll, I'll take that as a yes. good idea. Yes, I have a whole big bottle of them in my house. So at any rate, why not? It, people might get the point. All right. And no, no, not to block the voice in my head. I never do that. He's such a nice voice. All right. Let's go to Irene from Mission Viejo in California, or Mission Viejo. Okay. Uh, hi, what, Father Simon. Hi. What hi. can I? Uh, what can I do for you, Irene? I'm super nervous. Super, a first-time caller, Ooh. and I have a tendency to be a little ADHD. It's going in a lot of directions. But oh. what I'm looking for is, um, I have all these thoughts racing in my mind right now. Is I have a nephew yes. that we haven't spoken to in 20 oh. years, and my sister is having a surprise party. And my um, her daughter's giving it to her in Reno, California. Yes. And I, I'm Nevada, sorry. Mm -hmm. And I want to extend the invitation to her son that she hasn't seen in 20 years. I know her heart's broken that she hasn't seen him. It's really complicated and involved as to why they don't see each other. Sure. But I unexpectedly, his wife passed away. Oh my! In November, and they're only in their early 50s. Oh. So 
he kind of had a shock of a lifetime. So sure. he's alone with his two boys. And I don't know if that makes any difference, but I'd like, I reached out to him yeah. on, a, on an email and he, he wrote me back and he said, Oh, my Irene, um, thank you for your prayers. My wife was my whole life. And that's oh. all he said. So just the fact that he reached out and we're both babies mm-hmm. of the family and I'm from a large family, 45 nieces and nephews. Yeah big giant family and i'm thinking i want to send him another email but i don't know how to ask him like what well, just, just, just someone's unemotional just just write him you know it's it's your mother's what, what it's what it's mother's birthday right right just say hadn't seen her 20 years. you know we're having a party in reno for your mother's birthday maybe it's time and mm-hmm. maybe, maybe it's time to to start talking again Okay, and give I like the, that. The thing. Maybe it's time to start talking again. Uh, okay. It, you know, can it make it worse? I don't think so. It might make okay. it better. Just, yeah, I maybe it's time to start talking. Open. This is where maybe and when the party's going to be. Right. Hope I see right. you there. That's simple. Make it perfect. short and simple. Don't Thank justify you. it. Don't say, uh, oh, you should do this. You should just say, you know, maybe, you know, uh, we're having a birthday party for your mom. It's such and such you. here. Uh, maybe it's time to yeah. Maybe it's time to start talking again. This is a moment. Give it a shot. Couldn't hurt. And if they get mad at you, to say, uh, why did you do that? Why did you invite? Because it's the right thing to do. That's why. Thank you. There and you everybody's go. putting it on me because I'm the peacemaker kind yeah. of of our family. Well, I'm like, and if, oh, okay. if anybody complains, just tell them it was the right thing to do. It's the thing pleasing to God. So I didn't do it to please you. I did it to please God. There you go. All right? The best. All right. Peace. All Thank right. You. God bless Have Irene. And the Thank word you. Irene, of course, means peace in Greek. You know that, don't you? There. All right. Let's go to Amelia. Am- Amelia? Is that how you say it? Amelia or Amelia? In, in uh, uh, Orinda, California. Am- Amelia. You say it Amelia, not Amelia. Hi, okay. Amelia. Yes. Amelia. Hi, Father. Hi, Father Simon. How God you bless you. Thank I, you. I listen to you almost every oh, every day dear. after Mass to get more information about the Mass and more insight. Oh, and dear. it's Amalia in Greek. Amalia, yes. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, Father, my uncle died oh. in Montreal, Canada just yesterday, oh. just learned. I knew he was in uh, uh, palliative care for only three hours, <clears throat> passed away. Um, he saw a couple of people in his room, maybe he didn't know who they were, and he was telling the, the caretaker who he loves so much, uh, I see people, and uh, one is reading a magazine, she's blonde-haired, and I was concerned And and when I heard about it, because I talked to the caretaker just this morning, and the caretaker said, well, Les, are they bothering you? No, no, they're not, they're just looking at me. Now, Father, I I want to do something. I'm having a mass for him on sure. the 12th of February, which happens to be his wife's birthday, mm-hmm. and she passed away a year before. And um, I'm having another one in April for him. But what can I do for him? I I don't think he had a mass or anything. I don't think um, he had a priest to to give. Well, you know, I him. would I would just say have masses said for the repose of his soul. You know, yes, and just yes. remember that no one wants us to go to heaven more than God does. Absolutely. He's working hard to get us yeah. to heaven. And, you know, you yeah. trust God in this situation. And uh, thank you. just, I would say, have, have a mass or two said for him. So, okay. And then know. I just picked up a booklet here. It said, Daily Thoughts and Prayers for Our Beloved Dead. 
the pro, uh, pro, not profundus, deep profundus. Deep profundus. Could yeah. I say that for him now? Sure. Uh, because the, the mass it won't come for another few days. Sure, no you know, problem. That I no for him. problem. No problem. Oh, yes, profundus. And I will. Oh, I will tell you what. And, and, and don't. Yes. I, I will say a mass for the repose of his soul next time I get the chance. So oh, thank don't, you, and Les, Leslie. Leslie wears. Leslie, I will. I will offer yeah, mass for the wears. repose of his soul. Oh God bless Not you. To worry God about bless it. you. Not to worry you about it. You are just a wonderful priest. Well, some days. <laughs> oh, you are. <laughs> some oh, days, I'll yes. Some a, days, a not so much. All right. Well, oh, I will. No. I will thank be. You. I will offer mass for Leslie, and 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 don't worry about it. You don't have to send anything in or any, any of that sort of thing. So God bless you. It's it's so hard to to face that, especially with the great distance. So, Kathleen from Tustin, California, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. Um, I just uh, wanted to get your opinion. You know, growing up, my parents were um, played the music at a certain mass yeah. for over 40 years, yeah. um, and they got a little applause at the end, yeah. and it, I thought it was kind of like a thank you, you know. It's kind of like you... You get applause when you have an announcement of yeah, anniversary of or birthday or whatever. I just thought of it as a thank you, a not thank like you. A, a performance yes. thing, you know? The, but yes. I don't like it during Mass. No, and even, you, you know, the thing afterwards, uh, there, you know, uh, um, uh, I remember hearing some uh, uh, the some some great composer who said, uh, why did you applaud? I wasn't playing it for you. I was playing it for God, you know. That's the idea, and and I I do think that you know yeah, it, of course. you know it's it's people are courteous and they want to say thank you, they want to applaud, but I don't think they understand what they're doing, and that's why I grind that X a lot because I I think we need to understand, you know, the mass is a prayer addressed to, to the Father, ninety five percent of it, some of it's addressed to the Son, and just let me grind this X while I got it, mm-hmm. that that. In the new Mass, there is no place in which we speak to the Holy Spirit. We talk about the Holy Spirit, but there's no place in which we speak to the Holy Spirit. The new the new order of Mass is not Tridentine at all. In the old Mass, we had the prayer, Come, Sanctify Our Spirit, which was addressed to the Holy Spirit. One word to the Holy Spirit. We don't talk to the Holy Spirit in the new Mass, which I think is a problem. I don't think it invalidates the Mass. I think the gesture of uh, the imposition of hands, in a sense, is a non, a non an unspoken prayer to the Holy Spirit, but we don't talk to the Holy Spirit. But I think that 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 so often, because of the way we are now, we we live in front of TV screens and we're entertained constantly. Young people have a very hard time thinking the mass is not some sort of stage presentation, and that's why I'm really opposed to the the uh, applause at the end of mass. Well, speaking of applause, Drew doesn't expect any at all, and when he says the Divine Mercy Chaplet, he's talking to God. So. Hang around and talk to God with Drew. 